Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would now cause us to feel what Moses intended us to experience as we read this passage. I pray, Lord, that the devastation of the loss of the innocence and the purity of Eden, the glory of that pre-fall situation, Lord, I pray that even in the midst of the tragedy of sin, you would give us a sense of what we have to hope for, what we have to look forward to. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us your word by the power of your spirit, cause these truths that are here to be foundational for the way that we think, for the way that we think of who we are and how we evaluate ourselves with respect to others, Lord, we pray that your word would be the definitive reality in our lives. And so we ask that your spirit would write the scriptures on our hearts in these moments and cause us to be people who are not only defined by what's here, but informed by the hope that your word gives. Lord, we want to know you, and so we pray that you would come now by your spirit and use your word to teach us who you are. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 3. And in order to get a sense of, of what we're going to experience in Genesis 3, uh, I want to kind of review chapters 1 and 2. And so hopefully in this review, you will find some uh, mnemonic um, uh, Velcro for your brain. Years ago, a friend of mine um, in college said that, you're, said that our brain, this guy was a psychiatrist, and he said that our brains are like Velcro. And that as we memorize things, it's like our piece of Velcro in our brains grows. And it makes it so we have more stuff to hang things on. And so my hope is that in what I'm about to say, you'll build out the Velcro in your own brain. And you'll be able to hang more truths on what I hope takes, takes root and sticks now in your mind. Uh, by the way, years ago, I, I talked Denny into taking a Latin class that neither one of us finished out. We, were, we both had too much going, and uh, I, I talked to him about that Velcro thing in your brain, and he, he, uh, he went along with me for a short time, and then we both, we both wound up dropping that Latin class. It was just too much. We had too much going. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, it begins, uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, everything is formless and void. It ends... Genesis 1.31, everything is very good. And in the middle, what God has done is he has formed and then he's filled. And then if we think about those six days of creation in Genesis 1, so from, from formless and void to very good by means of forming and filling, if we think about those six days in the middle, there's a movement from heavens to earth because the opening verse is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So day one... God makes light. Day two, he separates the waters and forms the sky, heavens. 
And then day three, he makes the dry land. So there's a movement in days one through three from heavens to earth, light, and then the expanse or the sky, and then the earth, days one through three. And then days four through six have that same movement of heavens to earth. So day four, he makes the moon and the stars, uh, sun, moon, and stars uh, for, for the expanse, to fill the expanse. And then day two, he makes the fish and the birds. So the birds are going to fly through the heavens and the fish are going to fill the waters below. Did I say day two? I meant day five. Day six, sorry, I'm not all that good with numbers. Day six, he, he uh, makes the land animals and then humans. So there's a movement in days one through three that goes heavens to earth. And then there's a movement in days four through six that also goes heavens to earth as he fills the sky, fills first the sky with the, the sun, moon, and the stars, and then the sky with the birds and the waters below with the fish, and then uh, to the earth with the land animals and then humans, days one through six. And then Genesis 2, which is um, a kind of uh, retelling of the same story. It opens in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 with the seventh day. So seventh day is repeated three times in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And on the seventh day, God rested, and he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. He declared it holy, the seventh day. And it ends, so there's a kind of correspondence, I think, with the beginning and the end. It ends with the man and his woman coming together as one flesh, the man and his wife coming together as one flesh in marriage, and they are naked and without shame. And it's almost like this sanctified, holy completion of creation at the end of the chapter, as you had at the beginning of the chapter. In 2, 4 through 7, now, what we're, what, what's happening, it seems to me, is that Moses is, is sort of representing to us all the elements of creation. So uh, in chapter 1, we had the creation of of like things like vegetation and land animals and people. Well, here in Genesis 2, he starts out in 2, 4 through 7, telling us that there was no vegetation, you know, no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, and then God makes the man. So no vegetation, then the creation of the man in 2, 4 through 7. And then in 2, 8 through 14, we have God plant the garden, and then Moses describes the rivers that flowed through that garden, and then 2, 15 through 17, God makes the man and he puts him in the garden to work it and keep it. And he tells him, look at 2, 16. This is relevant for what we're going to see. 2, 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So there's this, this magnificent abundance and this glorious plentitude that God gives, gives him free access to. And then, then the prohibition in 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in the middle of this chapter, you've got the creation of the garden and its rivers, and then the man placed in the garden with his prohibition, and then corresponding to the no vegetation creation of the man, we've got the creation of the animals, which we also read about in chapter 1, and then the creation of the woman. So what I'm suggesting to you is that there are matching parts here, garden, man at the center, no vegetation, man, animals, woman, and then uh, at the end, uh, at the beginning and end, you've got the seventh day and then the marriage um, at the beginning and the end of, of chapter two. And as we approach chapter three, um, 
let me just briefly summarize for us what we're going to see in, in chapter 3. At the beginning of the chapter, the man and the woman are going to be naked. And they're going to be tempted to experience the knowledge of good and evil by means of eating of the forbidden uh, tree. And they are going to succumb to that temptation. They're going to uh, commit the first sin. That's 3, 1 through 7. And then 3, 8 through 13, their sin is going to be exposed. 3, 9 through 14, the sinners are going to be judged. And then 3, 20 through 24, God is going to clothe them. And because they've experienced the knowledge of good and evil, they're going to be driven out of the garden. So it goes from nakedness to clothing with knowledge of good and evil at the beginning and the end. And then in the middle, you've got the sinners exposed and judged. Um, as we approach chapter 3, I want, to, I want to read again the end of chapter 2. And I would encourage you to, as you, as you think about passages like this, to read them in their broader context. You know, as, as, you, as you work through Genesis chapter 1 and you see this, this God who is out of his own goodness, out of his own chesed, his steadfast love, speaking the world into existence with all of its glory, the, the mountain peaks and the lush valleys and the massive oceans and, and the glorious skies. He's speaking all this into existence, and then he's generously bestowing it on the man and the woman and making them in his own image and likeness. Note that. They're already like God and then he's giving them free access to everything that he's made. And then there is this wonderful innocence and harmony at the end of, at the end of chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a conclusion is drawn, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is connected to uh, chapter 3 because chapter 3 opens, now the serpent was more crafty. And the word for crafty there, there's a play on, the, on, on words because the word for crafty is the same Hebrew word that was rendered naked at the end of chapter 2. And, and I don't know if there's something going on here that's, that's something like, you know, we can speak in our culture of a naked power grab. I don't know if that's the sense in which the serpent is naked in the sense that his, his uh, inner uh, greed and lust for control and hatred of God is being described in this sense as, as naked or if it's, it's just something that, you know how words develop and sometimes there's, it's not always clear what the relation, sometimes there's no clear relation between what we refer to as a homonym. You've got two words that are spelled the same way. So I, I'm not sure what, what's going on. But at any rate, there's, a, there's a, a connection between the end of chapter 2, where the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed, and now the serpent was naked, more, more crafty than any other beast of the field. And I just want to note here that, that all through this chapter, and really all through Genesis, there are going to be these kinds of uh, restatements of phrases that if you, if you pay close attention, 
They will orient you to the context. And if you're reading this chapter in context, you're going to be reminded of things that you've just read. So for instance, this phrase, beast of the field. We've just seen this back up in 2.19. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. And what this tells us, among other things, is that this beast of the field did not self-generate. This beast of the field, this serpent, he too was made by God. So God isn't, we, we are not Zoroastrians. Zoroastrians believe that there's a good power and there's an evil power. And they're in conflict with one another. No, we believe that God made everything. God made everything, including the serpent. God made everything, including Satan. And, and one of the ways that Moses establishes this is by reusing these phrases. And we, we've read in chapter 1 about the creation of all these beasts of the field. So the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I, I want to try to use an analogy here. Imagine, imagine that you got to visit the home of the, the person with the largest collection of, of classic and luxury cars in the world. And the person who's going to give you this tour of this home and show you all of these cars is the son of the owner of this vast collection. And um, I actually Googled most expensive car in the world, and you come up with a, a, an amazing number of results. I think there's a Rolls Royce that actually costs like $13 million. So I'm just going to throw that in here as part of my illustration. Imagine that the son of, of this owner of this collection uh, tells you on the way through here, my dad has told me that I can drive any one of these cars except for that one $13 million Rolls Royce. How would you respond to that? Wouldn't, wouldn't, I think most of us, we would hear that and we would be amazed at the wealth, at the generosity, at the freedom. I think it would take a pretty twisted person to say something like this, your father is so stingy. Your father is so prohibitive. In fact, if you can't drive that one car, it might as well be the case that you can't drive any of the cars. What kind of man is your dad? And, and I think most of us would expect for the son to say, um, I'm going to summon security and you are going to be escorted out of here. You will not talk about my father that way. That's the way we ought to respond in reading this text. Look at, look at what happens here in the middle of 3.1. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And we're going to see, as was read, that her husband who was with her is also going to take and eat. So he's right there. And at this point, I submit to you that it is Adam's responsibility to step forward and say, um, sorry, Mr. Talking Snake, I don't know where you got the power of speech, but you are now going to be escorted out of the garden. And if you would like to speak, continue to speak to this woman, the only condition under which you are going to be allowed to do so is if you strike me first and kill me. We're having no more of this. You will not talk about my father this way. Why doesn't he respond this way? God has been so generous, so, so fully and completely good. 
well, I think we can understand why he doesn't respond this way because we're all sinners, right? And we've all failed to do what we, it was our responsibility to do. But Satan makes this, this horrible statement. And then verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And, and that's, that's good and right. She's responded appropriately. But I don't think she's captured quite the degree maybe to which she should have insisted on how good has God has been to them. You know, back up in, in 2.16, of, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And at the end of chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. It's like there's this joyful lavishing of everything except this one tree. Just not that one. And, and, and I think that there's a little, a little maybe tinge of a lack of appreciation already in her saying, as she does here, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. I mean, I would suggest that perhaps it would have been more healthy for her to say, no, he gave us everything. He, he said, we can surely eat. And, and that, I would suggest to you, that heart of gratitude and that heart of recognition of how good God has been is one of the ways, one of the things that we can cultivate to protect us against temptation. Seeds of greed and lust and, and, and anger and bitterness and envy and, and everything, all the other seeds of sins, those things have a hard time thriving in the soil of a grateful heart. Those things are going to thrive, though, in a heart where you're not as appreciative of God's goodness as you should be. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And this is one of those thought-provoking statements that different things could be going on here. On the one hand, she's got, she's got part of this right. And, and, and she wasn't created yet, according to chapter 2, when the prohibition was stated to the man. So the man has relayed the prohibition to her. And we've talked about how in the garden, the man was granted, the man and the woman were granted dominion over all the beasts. And I would just note here that, you know, last week I was talking about, uh, we were talking about Genesis 2. And we were talking about different roles and responsibilities of man and woman. I would just note that Genesis 1, 26 and 28 treat male and female as created there. Male and female as being granted dominion. Okay, so, so if I may emphasize last week this hierarchy of roles and relationships, let me also say that it's not like these are closed boxes. And also, you know, in, in Genesis 1, uh, 28... The man and the woman are commanded to rule and subdue. And subdue is going to include things like beautifying and glorifying. So if I emphasize women beautifying and glorifying, I don't mean to say men have no part in that. No, these are not closed boxes that are sheerly and completely closed off and men only do this kind of thing and women only... No, that's not what I mean to say. I do think there's a hierarchy of responsibility and a hierarchy of authority. And I do think there are emphases, but, but I don't mean to be presenting dichotomies that are um, mutually exclusive or anything like that. 
So, um, how did I get off into that? Um, where was I? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Okay, so the command has been communicated to her, to her by the man. This is where I was. And he, he was given dominion. He is a royal figure. And we talked last week, and we'll see today, ways in which he's a priestly figure. And in the communication of the prohibition to the woman, he's also a prophetic figure because he's communicating the word of God that has come to him to others. So I think it's valid to say that in the garden, Adam is like a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now, across my life, I have been inclined to interpret the other part of what the woman says. Neither shall we touch it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I've been inclined to interpret that as an addition. And I've been inclined to take that as a dangerous thing to do, to add to the Word of God, as a, an indicator that she's already sort of headed toward failure. But in, in thinking and reading and studying this, I'm, I'm not so sure of that interpretation anymore. That may be right, but the language here of, of neither, you shall not touch it, uh, neither shall you touch it, lest you die, is language that is is uh, also going to be seen in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, where we read that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So it may be the case, I don't know, it may be the case that the Lord warned Adam. That tree is, and maybe he didn't say this, but it's like the holy things that are going to be in the tabernacle. And you're not to eat of that tree, and if you, if you touch it, you're going to die. Like the, if the sons of Kohath touch the holy things, they're going to die. I, I'm not sure which way to take this. At any rate, there's a, a point of contact, isn't there, between, again, the tree in the garden and the holy things in the tabernacle. So the woman tells the serpent, yeah, we're prohibited from eating that tree, and we're not even to touch it lest we die. And then the serpent in verse 4 said to the woman, you will not surely die. And if you look back at chapter 2, 17, the last phrase, in the day that you eat of it, I don't know why they do one place shall and the other place will. Maybe there's a grammar nerd in here that can explain that to me after the service. I wish they would do it the same. I wish it was either you shall surely die or and you shall not surely die. Or you will surely die and you will not surely die because in Hebrew, the only difference between those two phrases is the word not. Now, maybe there's an English grammar rule that I'm not aware of about will and shall, but my point is, this, it's like the serpent is quoting God, but he's just putting the word not in there and directly contradicting the word of God. Don't miss here the connection between between suspicion about God's character. Did God actually say? What kind of person is your father that he would prohibit you from access to this one thing? Don't miss the connection between that and the direct contradiction of the word of God. I was thinking about this in the way that, the way that um, less conservative scholars talk about the Bible. And you know, there are lots of books in the Bible that these less conservative scholars will refer to as 
uh, pseudepigraphical writings, and that's a combination of Greek words, pseudo, which means false, or lying, and then epigraph, which means written. And I'll never forget hearing Gordon Wenham say, pseudepigraphical, he's a British guy, he goes, that's a posh word for forgery. You know, they don't come out and say, these writings are all forged, but that's what they're saying. Don't miss the connection between that. If you say that a writing is forged, it implies something about the character of those who did the forging from whom the writing came. There's a connection between calling into question God's character and directly contradicting God's word. You will not surely die. And then he just continues in the same vein. Verse 5. For God knows. Now, with every lie... For it to be successful, there has to be a grain of truth. And what the serpent is telling them is true. God does know what will happen if they take of this forbidden fruit. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And their eyes will be opened. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. It's the exact same phrase. He's right. Yes, God does know. And yes, your eyes will be opened. And then at the end of verse 5. And you will be like God. And here again, I don't, I, I mean, I, I say I don't. I do know why. It's human weakness, human frailty, limited human knowledge, and, and human culpability. But Adam has a responsibility here to say, stop it, snake. We're already like God. He made us in his image and likeness. He made us in his image and likeness. We are already like him. You will be like God, though, the serpent says, knowing good and evil. And then verse 6. Um, you know, I think it's harder to capture this in English, but it's, it's striking to read this in Hebrew. When it says, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, the construction is just like, and God saw that it was good. So it's almost like, Moses wants you to feel how godlike the woman is already before she's sinned and done what the snake is telling her to do. Because in chapter one, you know, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And now here's the woman looking at something that God has created. And, and the woman saw that the tree was good. And it's worded the same way as all that repeated phrase in chapter one was, was worded. And, and so as you read this, you're like, She's, God, she's responding to the creation the way that God responded to the creation already. And all that's about to end. Verse 6, so, the, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. Again, all this language. Look back at chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. She's seeing what God made. And, and again, I would say, Satan does not tempt us with things that he has created. Satan tempts us with things that God has created. And the things that God has created are all good. And the things that Satan tempts us with, typically, some of them are, some of them are altogether off limits and altogether to be avoided, but a lot of them are good things that if we will enjoy them within the parameters of God's instructions, within God's boundaries, it'll be magnificent. But what Satan is saying is, 
Go outside the parameters. Go outside the boundaries and get this good thing. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That's a really interesting uh, phrase there, to make one wise. Um, It's the same phrase that appears in Psalm 2 when the psalmist says, Therefore, O kings, be wise. It's, the, it's a phrase that's used in Joshua 1, 8, and 9 when, when it's said to Joshua, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll be successful. One of those words is the same phrase that we find, find right here. It's, it's, it's a word used when David says to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, essentially what's said to Joshua in Joshua 1. Uh, meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, and then you'll be wise. And what's interesting is that the serp, all those places, wisdom is hear the word of God and live it out. And here the serpent is saying, disobey the word of God and you'll be wise. It's a lie. So she sees that it's desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The man and the woman have no reason to doubt God's character. They have no reason to disbelieve God's word. They have have no reason to think that this serpent is truer to them than God is. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I don't know if you've seen this Jesus storybook Bible. I think that that, um, David Helm, his book there, it really profoundly captures how devastating this is. If you haven't looked at the Jesus storybook, is it the Jesus storybook Bible? Big picture story Bible is what I'm thinking of by David Helm. Sorry, I got confused there. I would encourage you to go look at the big picture story Bible and just read the creation. And then the the section on the fall is entitled, A Very Sad Day. It's profoundly moving. The big picture story Bible. Application from this, from Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Watch out who you listen to. Watch out who you listen to. If if, if Eve had never listened to that snake, this never would have happened. If, if, I don't think she would have gone to that tree and eaten of, the, eaten of that fruit if the snake had not come and poisoned her thinking. So I would just encourage you to beware of what you let in to the ear gate and, and be watchful of the way that it alters your, your perception of who God is and what he's like and what you have a right to and what you ought to do. We're all affected. I mean, this woman has never sinned. This woman is living in a state of utter innocence and purity, and and she's in a pristine creation, and her thinking and her desires are corrupted and polluted by the words of a snake. And then verse 8 brings us to this next section where we have the sinners exposed. So 3, 1 through 7, they're naked, And they have this experience of the knowledge of good and evil. Now 3, 8 through 13, the sinners are exposed. 
Don't miss the narrative logic here in 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Why did they hide themselves? They knew the commandment in 2.17. They knew the warning. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Why else? They knew he was going to find them. And they knew he was going to keep his word. That's why. That's why they're afraid. So for 3.8 to work, for the narrative logic here to work, things have to be going on that Moses doesn't spell out. Moses doesn't spell out. They remembered the prohibition, and they knew that God was going to keep his word, and that prompted their fear. He just shows you how they're fleeing from him. Also, the fact that they've, 3.7, they've made loincloths for themselves. We see there that they've both realized I can't trust that person like I could before we ate that fruit. Before we ate that fruit, we were both faithful to God and faithful to one another. Well, she just ate that fruit, and she, she was just false to God. I have no reason to think that she's going to be faithful to me. He was just false to God. I have no reason to think I can trust him with me, and so I've got to protect myself now. And so they cover themselves. So they're alienated from one another, and then when they hear the sound of him coming, we see that they're alienated from God. They're not, they're not banished from the Garden of Eden yet. That's about to happen. They're not physically dead yet, but they're spiritually dead. Spiritually, they are now alienated from God, and, and they now belong outside the Garden. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And this passage is always surprising to me because I think instinctively, um, we're, 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 it's like we're spring-wired to think that God's going to be angry with us. And um, what's so surprising to me about this passage is the way that it's like God comes and it's like he says... Um, I'm going to do everything I can to give you an opportunity to test my mercy, to try to see whether or not I'm a forgiving God. You know, when God passes before Moses and he proclaims his name before Moses, the first thing he says is about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So it's like what God wants to be known about himself. I'm a forgiving God. And so he comes to Adam, and, and I read this question when he says, the Lord God called to the man, which, by the way, he seems to be holding the man responsible here, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, 12 through 1, man, sin entered the world. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And, and I think it's, it's like he's saying to the man, would you like to take stock of your spiritual state at this point? Would you like to come before me and see if I'm merciful? Would you like to come and confess your sin and repent of it? Well, the man's not ready for that. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And... Um, you know, this is not the way to respond when you get found in your sin. When you get found in your sin and you respond this way, 
all you show is that you're not yet ready to deal with your sin. You're not yet ready to own your sin. The way to, the way to respond when you're found in your sin is simply to confess and seek mercy. Here, here, let me give you some phrases to use, okay? When you get caught in your sin, uh, I, I would encourage you to write these down. You write these phrases down, you use them uh, across your life, and things will go well for you, especially if you mean them, right? Especially if you feel things that correspond to this. I was wrong. I sinned. I repent. I apologize. Please forgive me. Last week, I said some things that I shouldn't have said in the sermon. I sinned against my brother Chris up there. I was wrong. I sinned. I repent. Please forgive me. This is what makes grace possible. If you don't do that, no forgiveness can flow. Adam needs to do that. He's not ready to do that. So he, 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 he's talking about the circumstances, but he's not talking about the issue. Verse 11, the Lord said, the Lord, again, the Lord is so patient, so kind, so gentle, so loving. And, and do I need to point out, too, that it's not like Adam went looking for God. It's not like Adam ate of the fruit, which this is what we would like to see. This is what we would be encouraged by about Adam's spiritual fruit. If he sins against the Lord, and it, then it, his, he realizes his guilt in the terms of Leviticus. And, and it becomes known to him what he's done. And he's like, I've got to go find him and confess. That's not what happens. It's the Lord who does the finding. And I would also point out that when we read there in verse 9, the Lord God called to the man. It's the exact same phrase that we've seen repeatedly in chapter 1. God called the light day. And it, it's a very subtle thing because in the one sense, God's naming the day. And here he's summoning the man, but it's the same expression. And I think it's communicating God's word is going to be as effective here as it was there. God's word in, in calling the man to himself is going to have the same effect of God naming. That's what it's going to be. He's going to call him back to himself. So the Lord initiates this reconciliation. And he says to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And we don't read, you ate of the tree. You are guilty. No. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? God, God knows. Don't read this like an open theist. Oh, it looks like God doesn't know. That's ridiculous. The God of Genesis 1 knows what's happened. That's preposterous that God wouldn't know. And, and God is not like some weak thing who's trying to figure out. No, he knows. Who told you that you were naked? Do you want to, Adam, do you want to, do you want to elaborate? You haven't said yet what you need to say. I'm going to give you some more time to say what you need to say. Are you ready yet to repent and seek mercy and apologize? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Adam, wouldn't you like to confess this? Wouldn't you like to get this off your chest? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He's still not there. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So it's the last thing he says, and I ate. And so God moves to the woman. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this that you have done? And, and it's almost like he's now applying the same approach to the woman that he had applied to the man. Would you like to take the opportunity to confess and repent? He, he's not ready to confess and repent. He needs to confess and repent. He won't do it. What is this that you have done? Would you like to tell me about this? I know what you've done. The woman said, she, her, her statement is phrased exactly like his in that and I ate is the last thing she says. Finally, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We're going to have to come back and, and continue the chapter uh, next week. But as, as, as your two take-homes from this, which hopefully, hopefully what will happen here is that this narrative is just going to take root in your soul. And there are going to be more applications that arise for you out of these statements and out of this text than I could ever enumerate. Because really, this is supposed to be a life-defining word for us. This is a word that is supposed to explain to us what's wrong with everybody. And it really does. This word explains what is, this, this passage explains what has gone wrong in the world. And it shows us a merciful and compassionate God who is seeking to initiate reconciliation. But here here are two take-home applications for you. The first one being, watch out who you listen to. The second one being, when you're caught in your sin, and you will be, God will ensure that you will be. God has set up the world so that sinners are found out. I mean, that statement over in in the book of Numbers, when it says, be sure your sin will find you out. It will happen. We're sinners, and people are going to catch us in our sin. When that happens, just, just own it. I sinned. I'm sorry. I repent. I apologize. Please forgive me. If you'll say those things, it's, it's amazing how, how people are... People are godly. Christians are godly. And they'll forgive. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, you, don't, you, you haven't committed yourself to God as your God, that's what you need to say to the Lord. You need to go. He knows what you've done. And, and what he's saying to you is, where are you? What's happened? What have you done? And what you need to do is you need to come before him and you need to, you need to just confess it. I'm a sinner. I've sinned in all these ways. I'm guilty before you. I deserve death. And we didn't get to it in this passage. But God is going to make a way for sinners to be forgiven. And he's done that by sending the Lord Jesus who died on the cross and if you'll come to God and you'll confess your sin and, and you'll place your hope in Jesus who died on the cross, he will forgive you if you mean it, if you mean it, if you're really turning away from sin and really trusting in Christ. I'll be at the back after the service. There'll be some elders here at the front. Probably the person sitting next to you would love to talk to you or, or take you to somebody that would love to talk with you about this. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow God, what it means to know this merciful and compassionate God who has, who has real standards that are really good for people and who really does enforce those standards, and it's good for people that he enforces them. But he also forgives people when they transgress his standards.
Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would cause us to feel the, the devastation of sin. Lord, cause us to, to know how glorious the world was before, before through one man sin entered it and death through sin. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to have a clear-eyed perception of what sin does, that sin brings death, that sin doesn't create happiness, it doesn't create rest, it doesn't restore us, it destroys us, it ruins us. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to love your holiness and cause us to anticipate the new creation as a result of our contemplation of the very good world that you made in the beginning. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to fix our hopes on Christ and give us the, the moral courage and the strength of character simply to confess and repent. Grant us the gift of repentance, Lord, and help us to, to use that gift in all kinds of relationships. And Lord, through that, I pray that you would cause reconciliation to abound among us. Cause us to be people who, who are hopeful about others, who are willing to trust others, people who are loving because we can confess and repent and because we're confident that by your grace, others will be able to as well. Lord, you've been so good to us. We love you, and we thank you for the revelation of who you are in the Scriptures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.